Jesus. One sec. I gotta lubricate like grandpa. How do I spell morning? I'm so glad you asked. I spell morning with you. You. Thank you for listening to Ghoul School, a horror history podcast here on the Unpops Network. I'm Andy Sell. Thank you. Again, I already said that, but you can't be thanked too many times, right? So thanks again. If you aren't busy and you feel like it, you can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us at Ghoul History on Twitter. If you're not aware, I also co-host another podcast with my friend Philip Johnson. It's called Look Good for the Boys. It is a horror gossip podcast. If you're not sure what that means, go ahead and you can listen and find out. We not long ago wrapped on season two. But we are coming back with Season 3 on Friday, May 13th. Of course, that's when we're coming back. When else would we come back? I'm thrilled to bring you today's episode because it's another extra dreadit, and it's two incredible films, and I get to talk to my friend, Sean Farina, who is our guest. The film he chose was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't need to say anything else about that movie. There's no adjectives or little details that I can pile onto there. I just say the title, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know what I'm talking about. The film that I paired with it for a B feature was 1932's The Old Dark House, directed by James Whale, based on the novel Benighted by J.B. Priestley. Our guest, Sean Farina, runs the Malcontent Media Podcast Network, featuring such shows as Whiskey with Witcher, Pod Forsaken, and Tentpole Trauma. You can check all those out at your leisure. And I don't have a whole bunch of other stuff to say right now. I thought about doing a lecture on the old dark house mystery genre, or a little bio on James Whale, and decided that I would actually like to explore both of those subjects more in depth in the future. So, without wasting any more time, let's go ahead and talk to Sean Farina, about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Old Dark House. Okay. Uh, hoy hoy. Ahoy hoy. So, Sean Farina, you are a guy I know. You're a friend of mine. So I hear. I'm excited about this because this is one of the pairings that I was actually, like, really proud of. <laughs> this is As well, you should be. It was a great one. Yeah, it worked out for you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, 100%. This is one of those ones that I think is like kind of sneaky, but also kind of obvious in like the right ways. So I was really I was really happy when I shot back with this one. Because I spent a long time trying to come up with something for it. 1974, The Texas Chainsaw, two words, Massacre, Toby Hooper. You're a huge fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It could be argued. 
Yeah, you're one of the biggest fans I know of the series. <laughs> I would say that's fair. At the very least, the first four entries, like the original continuity, if you will. The pre-9-11 change <laughs> I think is the way I think before that, everyone got all sensitive yeah I think that's the way I look at it like the line 9-11 is the line of demarcation for me between <laughs> let's just call them the good Texas Chainsaw Massacres and the not quite Texas Chainsaw Massacres I recently had to watch them all and I want to be clear to our listeners, if you don't listen to Look Good for the Boys and you haven't heard me give you this warning yet, I do not advise that. (laughs) I I do not advise binge watching all of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. It is a lot. It is exhausting. Because we've got nine of them now, right? Yeah, there's fucking nine of them. Because it used to be the original, and again, I use the word continuity loosely, as is ever the case with this series. Yeah. Or this property, I guess. Yeah, it used to be that, you know, the first four were half of the franchise, Mm -hmm. which, you know, most other cases, Nightmare, Jason, Halloween, they got, you know, at least seven movies out. And, you know, the what's come after it hasn't overtaken that yet. But now, everything post-original continuity in Texas Chainsaw Massacre now outnumbers what we got from 1974 to 1994-1997. And I think all of those second five films bear the mark of the remake a lot more than they bear the mark of the original film. So yeah, putting it as like they're outnumbered is a good way to put it because it really feels like two different armies. Yeah, the most recent one, despite you know taking us on a journey to you know timeline C from the original, just really clearly I'm just sorry, wanted to- I think we hit C a while ago. This is like <laughs> this is like timeline F two. Well, as far as, you know, claiming to be a direct sequel of the original, declaring deliberate ignorance of anything that came before it. Yeah. Timeline C. And yeah, it clearly just wanted to be more of a sequel to the 2003 one. So they really just kind of should have done that. Yeah, but I I don't want to get into it because I know you probably don't like we haven't actually talked about the new one at all, which is. Oh, we haven't yet. Yeah. No, we haven't. And I know you. I. I know you don't like it. Without even asking you about it, I know you don't like it. <laughs> I don't. Maybe yeah. not for the reasons you think, though. I don't like it in a large part because, much like the 2003 one, it's just like the worst kind of bad, which is just like totally mediocre and just bores the shit out of me. It's got some good kills, but other than that, like, uh I couldn't disagree more. I like it a lot. And I know it's, again, not as a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. But of the post-9-11 Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) movies, I think that this one and 3D are easily the two best. Like, it's not even a fucking contest for me. Like, Yeah, 3D is so underappreciated. Yeah, 3D is solid. 3D is solid. But I just wanted to say that, like, my whole thing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies is that they're all trying so hard to just be overwhelming and to be, like, an experience a ringer that they put you through and they really, most of them just succeed in being like entiring you out, wearing you out. And that's why I just want to say, I do not recommend watching all nine of these movies <laughs> to, to get caught up. You don't have to like pace yourself, drink some water, stay hydrated, space <laughs> them out over a couple of days. Like even two in one day is pushing it. 
you and I, Sean, went to see a triple feature at the Egyptian of the first three. That's right. And I was very tired by the end of that. My position on part two had changed because I was just so worn out. I remember, yeah, you had chop top fatigue by the end of that yeah. movie, which, <laughs> yeah. which, which you may not have had had you not sat through the first one first, which itself is fucking exhausting. Exactly. That's the whole thing. Like you can't, these movies aren't made to be binged. It's like eating, you know, two big boy specials at Bob's Big Boy. Like you only need, you only need one. You get full on one. The second one is going to make you sick. So watch the first one, then wait a day and watch the second one. Because both of those movies are very, like, overwhelming. They're the two most, like, relentless. Because part four gets there eventually, but you have to sit through, like, the first half of it with those intolerable kids. And, like, you know, once they actually get to the house and, you know, things start moving, then it feels like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. But we are at risk of this just becoming a Sean and Andy argue over, like, the rankings of each Texas Chainsaw people. <laughs> That might be a fun bonus episode sometime, <laughs> but we're here to talk about the first movie. Let's get rid of <laughs> all the other stuff regarding all of the sequels. Even we will get into, I'm sure, your personal connection to part three. But what is it about the first movie that captured you? What was the first time you saw it, for example? Uh, it was when I was in high school because I kind of I didn't come into horror as somebody who put on VHSs as a kid. You know, or sat down and watched a lot of horror movies. My folks always had cable, and so I would sit and watch just, you know, smatterings of scenes from, like, the big three, because they were constantly churning those out. It was Friday, Nightmare, and Halloween. Mm -hmm. And the first time a horror movie ever really fucked with me, which is probably responsible for my greatest fear being drowning, is in Nightmare 4, when uh, the kid gets sucked into the waterbed. Just that that shot of, yeah. you know, the mom pulling off the comforter and him being inside it, just like, oh, man, like, that still, that still chills me to think about. That's one of my favorite kills in the entire Nightmare series, because it's so simple and elegant and, like, and, like, has that weird supernatural quality to it. It isn't just, like, kids waking up with, you know, having choked or, you know, having claw marks on them or anything like that. Like he sucked. That, that's so fucked up. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, explain that, you know what I mean? Like if she has a life insurance policy, like his mom has a life insurance policy <laughs> out on him. Like, is that, is that going to pay off? Is the insurance company going to be like, wait, how is he found inside the mattress? Yeah. I mean, they're going to examine that mattress and it's not like there's going to be any signs of tampering. Like the kid's just in the mattress. That's going to lead to a lawsuit, right? She's just going to sue the waterbed company. I like her chances. <laughs> I mean, it's going to get settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, but she's going to get something out of it because they're just like not going to know what to do. So that's one of the horror movies that fucked you up the first time. Yeah. So it was more in high school when I started actually seeking out horror flicks and sitting down and watching them. And yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of them. And like, there's nothing quite like it in how or at least up to its up to when it was made there's nothing quite like it in how once Sally gets to the house like it just the everything about it just comes unspooled the narrative comes unspooled like everything you think about every one of those characters you just like it's it's like the end of a rope like pulling all the little fibers out mm -hmm. and you know what was kind of ordered chaos just becomes a complete fucking nightmare yeah and in terms of what i've come to appreciate about horror and what i realize actually scares me it just nothing does it better. 
because I can sit and watch The Exorcist or The Innkeepers or A Dark Song and appreciate how supernatural horror like is scary and can be scary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the, the stuff that will I'll find scary in the moment. That doesn't keep me up at night because I don't believe in magic. What scares the shit out of me is the monsters that we are all capable of being to one another and why we are all incredibly unsafe at all times because of that. Yeah. And especially that film's ability to contextualize that, to like give hints at the reasons for it without really saying like, well, this is why they're like this. It's like, well, there's recession and there's, you know, an industry collapse and, you know, the flight from the small towns and all of these things that kind of like paint, start to paint a picture here of the curse that kind of holds us all in, in our society. That threat of like, if enough of these things go away, what do you become? If society turns its back on people, then they're going to start to turn their back on like the morality that is asked of them to be a part of society. Yeah. And the way that this film does it too, where it couples that with the horror of the uncertain, where it's just like, because, you know, someone screaming at you is scary. Someone coming at you with intent to harm you is scary. What's scarier is if they're doing that with a smile on their face. Like, and that's what Texas Chainsaw Massacre does. It's none of these threats, really, in the original film. It's screaming at you. It's holding knives and chainsaws and hammers in your face. But it's also, like, laughing as it does it. And it's hitting you with a broom. And it's, like, cutting itself. It's, it's like, it's a bunch of stuff where you just never know. It's inviting you to dinner and strapping you to the chair, but still putting a plate of food in front of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And the food is your friends. Yeah. (laughs) And there's dancing. Yeah, we get really, one of the things that really struck me on this viewing is, which I I mean, which I had obviously always, you know, noticed, but just it really sunk in this time is just how much time after they talk about all the Zodiac stuff, the members of the family, including the window washer, spend like looking up at the sky. And uh, after the hitchhiker gets kicked out and he's doing his weird little dance, he's looking up at the sky. So is Leatherface at the end when he's doing his uh, chainsaw dance. It's almost like it's the prophecy of the horoscope reading being fulfilled, like through these people. Like they're hearing it. They know that they're a part of it. Yeah, they're looking up to the stars. That is an interesting thing to point out, though. I don't think I've ever noticed that before watching this film of, of all of the like acknowledging either a higher power or a cosmic order in some way. Which, yeah, maybe they don't even realize that that's what they're doing, but, you know, it, it seems like that's just kind of, you know, what they're compelled to look to. Yeah. Which, uh, to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, is one of the things that I think is fun about the old dark house. And when, oh, uh, what's their names? The Femmes. The Femmes. What a name. What a name. By the way, I love both of the family names here. The Sawyers and the Femmes. The Femmes. <laughs> I think Femme Sawyer would be a killer drag queen name. <laughs> And I mean, you uh, you would have to do the skin suit from part four. Oh, absolutely. That's so absolutely. Like, there, there's, yeah. there's no other choice. But I, I love just one of the little things that I think made this a great pairing was this being the viewing where I was really keying in on the, you know, looking to the sky aspect of the Sawyers was that Brother Femme makes fun of his sister for what, he, what does he describe as like her tribal ritual? Yeah, tribal habits or tribal rituals. Yeah. yeah. In wanting to say grace before dinner. She And she's constantly referencing God 
yeah. and is constantly talking about how sinful and blasphemous and wicked the family is. And there's also this whole thing going on with the floors of the of the house where she's pointing up and saying like, oh, the, the lamp is up at the top of the stairs beyond that. And she even compares it to heaven. She says something about like, you know, you you believe in a top floor even if you don't believe in in God. You in know, God, basically. yeah. It's a fun little little bit. So that yeah, that's an interesting observation, and it's always fun to me when because I don't how many you probably couldn't tell me how many times you've seen this movie. I probably watched it two to four times a year for at least the past ten years. Yeah, so that's a lot. It it is it is one of the three movies that. Like, October is not allowed to end until I've watched it. It's Texas yeah. Chainsaw Massacre, Reanimator, and In the Mouth of Madness. Okay, so I my I have a Halloween. It grows every year. It's hard to navigate October these days because yeah. it's like I can't watch new stuff. You know, I can't watch a lot of new <laughs> stuff or a lot of first-time views because I have too many favorites I have to watch in that month. It's a burden. Nobody knows how hard we have it, Andy. Yeah, no, it's, gosh, we're the real victims. So... <laughs> It's rare the films that you can keep watching over and over again and always finding something new with. It's, it's, it's special. And Texas Chainsaw is when you watch it and it starts out with it's already warning you that like yeah. this is going to, as you said, a place where it's unspooled. This is going to get to a place that is completely unfamiliar to you as a viewer. Like the rules that the movie is playing by, that it tells you that it's playing by, like that is gradually thrown out the window twice. Yeah. And I mean, the first thing you hear after John Larroquette's voice is the sound of a shovel hitting dirt. And it creates this like sort of weird, arrhythmic, percussive score that then they bring in the the Polaroid sound effect. And then they bring in the, the slowly the radio broadcast. And it's just like and it's darkness, you know, aside from those flashes of image. But you're held in darkness for a little bit first with these sounds that you can't really identify. And... Yeah, it's already unsettling. Yeah, it's the the digging and like you know the grunting and breathing of somebody who's whoever's wielding that shovel. Yeah, it's fucked up. And Wayne Bell still won't tell the world how he made that fucking sound with, for the uh, for the Polaroids. It starts out sounding like a creaking mm-hmm. that you know yeah. went through some kind of fucked up filter, and then it like kind of sounds like that combined with metal scraping on metal and it's so because it, it keeps changing and like just as soon as you think you have an idea of what it might be it like it, it, it gets a little bit more fucked up and it's like no, no it's not that it also almost sounds like a much smaller much quicker godzilla roar like the sound that they use for godzilla's roar which is what a, a cello played in reverse i believe oh yeah 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 it sounds kind of like that too. It has that weird, like where it, it starts, like I don't know what the word would be, like a e, you know, like a creak, yeah, like a, like a long, sharp creak, and then it kind of like expands almost to like an O sound, and then it tightens back up again, and it's such an interesting sound. Yeah, that's another unique one that just has that like ineffable quality to it where you you always forget just how high pitched it is because when you picture, you know, like a monster roaring, it just when you hear in your head the sound of a monster roaring, it just sounds like a monster roaring, but then you watch it and, and yeah, it's like weirdly high pitched and you know, there's yeah. like a scraping quality to it. This the sound in this film in general, like the sound editing and the sound design and like it's so fucking weird and unsettling. And like the the weird banging and clanging and 
sounds that pass for a score in it. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like this like dis- discordant kind of sound of I don't know. It sounds like a submarine sinking. You know, <laughs> it's it's so unsettling and disorienting and. And the moments where there isn't score, where it's kind of showing you like the movie that it could be if it wanted, like that shot of the van pulling out of the gas station and going down the road, which is very clearly supposed to be, you know, it's like, okay, this is, there's no turning back now. It's that moment. Like anybody else would have put, you know, some kind of dramatic music, something foreboding. Yeah. But instead it's just, there's just no score there. It's yeah, just I love know, that. the sound of the, the van heading down the road into madness. And the, sh- the shot of the gas station sign and the empty lot. It's just like, yeah, there's a feeling of loss in it before anything's really even happened. Yes. I, I watched a, a talk recently that John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats gave. He did, they did this thing at the Denver with the Denver Public Library where they, you know, they have a guest who picks a film and then they talk about the film for a while. And John Darnielle had a lot of really incredible insight about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, including like invoking this idea that it's a Greek tragedy, that there are these very like classical Greek theater elements to it. And yeah, there's books written about it. Speaking of, you've read Chainsaw Confidential, I imagine. Yeah, I have. I I listened to it, which is great because Gunnar Hansen reads it. Yeah, I need to listen to it. I need to do that. Yeah. But there's so much written about this film and it's it's one of those things where like i i'm a lot of times when someone picks a film like this this is the biggest film somebody's picked so far i think huh. uh, like we, we had somebody pick hellraiser one of the first extra dreadits i did was hellraiser and that's probably the second biggest like no one's picked exorcist or halloween or someone has picked night of the living dead but uh we haven't picked a pairing for it yet that's a tough one yeah <laughs> You know, I, I'm kind of averse a lot of times to these movies that where there's just so much in the conversation out there that it's like, well, what can I add to it? What can I say about this movie that we don't already know, that we haven't gotten into a hundred times already? Well, that's the brilliance of the pairing, because, you know, we get to contextualize it that way. Yeah, I, yeah, thank you. I think that, that that works. But also, it's because I, you know, I don't want someone who's just like, well, I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So that's the one I'm going to pick. If somebody says The Exorcist and they don't like have a room dedicated to exorcist memorabilia, we're not doing it. If they and it isn't if the walls aren't painted like pea green. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If they don't if they don't have the gun Friedkin fired to scare Linda Blair <laughs> on the wall of their office, like I'm really I'm looking in your office right now and I'm literally seeing a, a saw. Was is that a screen used saw? Uh, that was not. So I've got the three saws on my walls. I have the screen used Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 teaser trailer saw, one of two of them. And then I have two screen accurate reproductions of the two saws that Leatherface wields in part three, which is the Excalibur saw as it's known that has, you know, the chrome one that says the saw's family on it. And the what uh, has been referred to as the skin and bone saw, which has like leather and bones and stuff hanging off of it. And is uh, the more standard size, like 24 inch bar. And you've got a mask right next to it and figure like you are a Texas Chainsaw Massacre super fan, but you have a connection. You have a personal connection to part three as well. Uh, I do. Yeah. The, uh, like the reason that I have the saw from the teaser trailer is that my old man who ran an entertainment marketing company for decades, produced that teaser trailer 
also produced the trailer that it's based on, the Excalibur trailer that has the sword coming out of the water. And he actually used to have the Excalibur sword, too. Oh, sat wow. at his office for years, and then it went missing somehow when they moved offices, unfortunately. But I have the more important thing, which is the saw from the TCM3 trailer. I love that trailer. Is there any particular character in the, the original movie that you relate to or just love the most? That's a tough question. Looking at, at all the members of the Sawyer clan, like I have a tough time not bringing in the characters from the second one. Yeah. Which, because we have a very different Leatherface and we have Chop Top. And I kind of rank them all in degrees of how much I enjoy watching them try to be people. <laughs> Chop Top is my favorite. The cook is, is great too. Yeah, just watching him at the beginning, you know, be one of the killers, but also be the guy who kind of gives them the, what do they call it in, in Cabin in the Woods? The Harbinger? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Be one of the killers, but also be the Harbinger. is a really unique place in horror storytelling. And yeah, like watching him try to be people is is great. Especially because he's like, I think he's the most kind of complicated character of, of the killers. Because you see him like when he's in the car driving Sally back to the house and he's like jabbing her with the broomstick and you see him start to be excited by it. And then you see it like him kind of pull back because he's kind of like disgusted by that part of himself, which is why he, he can't stand killing. His performance is so interesting. I mean, all of the performances in this film are very interesting in the first film. Gunnar Hansen is doing some incredible work. Edwin Neal is doing incredible work as the hitchhiker. They're both doing very specific things. But Cedaw, what he's doing as the cook, as Drayton, it's like he's pulling, he's being pulled in two different directions constantly. And it's really interesting to watch. Especially that scene where he's hitting her with the broom in the in the truck when, yeah, you're right. He looks like he's like, I don't want to do this, but I gotta, I can't stop it. It's so unnerving. And the truck is when that's most on display because, you know, in the dinner scene, it's like revelry that he's getting pulled into as his brothers are terrorizing Sally. But in the truck, it's just him. And he's just, you know, he feels himself giving into it and then has to stop himself. Ah, it's so good. It is kind of, I guess, hard to say, you know, the, the normies as they are, the, uh, the victims. Because we don't really get to know most of them. Except through, and this is, I'm going to say something right now. I love Franklin. I think he's great. And he is how you get to know these other characters is how they react to him. Yes. Yeah. Like Kirk especially is a piece of shit to him. And Jerry, Jerry's like, I'm good. I told him where you lived. He's going to get you. That knife won't do you any good. He likes that knife. Remember? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's honestly, it's funny, but it's like, it's hard to say like, is that worse than what Kirk does? Because Kirk's the one that's like kind of nice to him in person almost. When Franklin's like, oh, you don't think I did anything to make him mad, right? And Kirk's laughing at him, like, yeah. crazier than he is. Which I, I always took that to mean that, like, Kirk is like, why do you care what that crazy person thinks? I think it's this kind of shitty way of trying to, like, be actually reassuring to Franklin. Yeah. And say, like, yeah, like, you know, he's, he, he's laughing it off to at the service of trying to get Franklin to worry about it less. I have never heard, noticed this before, but as they're running to the, the path, the trail between the sheds, he is saying, what a zero. He's like the biggest zero on earth or something like that about Franklin. Somebody yeah. should shoot him and put him out of our misery. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa. 
Yeah, he's definitely the more two-faced of the two. Jerry is just kind of constantly needling him and being kind of a dick. Yeah. But even Sally is, like, not super nice to him. I mean, I get it. He's he's kind of annoying to be around. Well, the two of them just do the best job of playing siblings. Like, she's yeah. just she's just exhausted with him. And I really appreciate what a great job she's doing of just feeling exhausted by having to deal with Franklin. There's this great thing in her performance and in Paul Partain's performance as these siblings where you can see that Franklin knows that, or at least thinks of himself as a burden. Yes. But he doesn't know how to address it without it being self-pitying or resentful. And Marilyn Burns, Sally, she doesn't know how to communicate to him. Like, no, it's not that you're a burden. It's just that, like, I have my own life, too. And you're, you're kind of always in it. Yeah, it is complex. It certainly helps, too, that Paul Partain went full method as uh, folks who know the behind-the-scenes stories there. Everybody on that set hated him because he was just <laughs> being Franklin all the time, and they found him intolerable. I love that. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, like, you know, you asked me what, uh, what character I like the most, and before I decided to jump straight to the killers, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I very quickly kind of, like, took a, a quick look at the arguably more sympathetic characters, and I, I landed on Franklin as being the one that I probably, like, most identify with. I don't think that I'm as annoying as Franklin in general, but my particular you know, insecurities in my life such as they are, lead me to identify with him more than anybody else rolled up in that van. Yeah, I definitely absolutely relate to Franklin in that, like, in just the, the, his level of frustration, his level of, like, uh, self-loathing sometimes, his le- this, this idea, the, this moment that he has when he's by himself and he's struggling to get his chair up into that screened-in porch. Yeah. He can't get it, and he... He's just getting so frustrated. And then he finally gets in there and it hits him like, oh, I'm alone. And then it's like, it's not just I'm alone right now. It's I'm alone in my life. It's so fucking sad when he's just sitting in there quiet. And then he hears the other people having a great time. And then it turns to anger and resentment. And he just... He starts making fun of it. I love it. I love that whole moment so much. And he's the most fleshed out character. Yeah, easily. Yeah, but that yeah, that's a great insight that his his life is sitting at the bottom of the stairs waiting for somebody else to you know come down to him. Yeah, exactly. And it's so uh, there's so much in that. And it is funny though that I never thought of it until now. This this idea of rhyming the sibling rivalries, you know. Where it's like Sally and Franklin have this sibling stress, but it's nothing compared to what the Sawyer brothers have going on. Yeah. <laughs> like it's one of those things where it's like Sally and Franklin, if they, you know, if they survive this, anytime they had a fight from now on, I'd be like, well, at least we're not those folks. Or sausage. Yeah, or sausage. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> when she's in the gas station and she's looking at the barbecue. As the the radio talks about the grave robbing, ah, yeah, just it's beautiful. Is there a particular scene that like? Honestly, the the scene in the van with the hitchhiker, the way that it sets your expectations for the kind of movie that you're watching, you know, where you are all of those characters just sitting in horror watching what this like maniac is doing to himself, and you know, kind of being 
loudly told that like, oh no, we're you are outside of societal norms right now. Like leave that behind. Oh, and guess what? There's no gas to get back. So enjoy the rest of this. Well, it's, and it's not even just you're outside of societal norms in the narrative of this film. It's like genre wise, this film is a declaration of you are not in what we used to talk about when we talked about horror movies. Like yeah. you are, you are so far off the fucking map right now. Like you have no context for anything that's about to happen. <laughs> Yeah, one of the things I love about this movie and, you know, talking about the context for it is that it has the same relationship with Vietnam that film noir had with World War II. It's looking at what was happening in the world and the sense of nihilism that is kind of pervading American society as a result of it. And obviously it was much more toned down in film noir, but that was when you started having anti-heroes and, you know, femme fatales and... It started being about how, you know, you can't trust anyone and there aren't good guys and there aren't bad guys and forget about the fucking cops. Yeah. And you have a bunch of hippies who in Texas Chainsaw Massacre that accidentally wander into the backwoods and uh, are about to find out that, yeah, the summer of love is over, kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's very much this is like the post-Vietnam horror movie. And I guess Death Dream, Bob Clark's Death Dream from the same year. I believe is another one that's kind of like fits into that, the post-war film. I actually haven't seen that one, but you just made me want to watch it very badly. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's Bob, and it's Bob Clark. So what are you going to do? Not watch yeah. a movie directed by the guy that did Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things in Black Christmas? I don't think so. <laughs> but everything that gets them into trouble is them like trying to continue to live these hippie ideals, like up, picking up a hitchhiker because it's the other right thing to help somebody out or, you know, oh, hey, you know, gas. They have a generator. They've got gas. So, you know, they'll, they'll play ball. We'll just leave them my guitar and then, you know, give them a couple bucks on our way back. And, you know, like that's that's just how the world works. Yeah, well, there's right. There's that idea of bringing your let's call them values of privilege to an area where you are an outsider and expecting them to work for you. Right. Is, is what leads to trouble. And what's funny is that as far off the map as I just said this movie is, and as playing by its own rules as it is in a lot of ways, that's also not a new formula. Like, that's where horror started <laughs> in so many ways, you know? It sort of very much is the more adult post-Vietnam version of, there's a monster in the woods, don't go in the fucking woods. Right. You know? <laughs> Because the things in the woods don't care that you have a brother and a mommy and a daddy and don't care that you have a future and that you're only a child and you're young and that you think the world is supposed to go a certain way. They have different rules. And that's horror. That's what it is in a lot of ways. You know, there's all, there's the horror of the self and horror of society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this is like the basis. Right. I think what makes this flick unique, though, is that, you know, the scariest thing isn't the immoral, it's the amoral. And normally that's dressed up in fangs and capes and, you know, something that is a little more distancing from the person that you're going to see running the gas station or the hitchhiker that you're going to pick up. But, you know, it's just fucking people who don't care about all those things you were saying before. Yeah, it's cosmic horror as a person or as a group of people. It's yes. yeah, right. It's the unknowable. It's, it's weird because for all of these context clues you can point to, 
as to, okay, well, where does this come from? You know, the recession, the war, the, the reductionism of humanity, you know, the idea of reducing humans to, well, in this case, to meat, you know, this idea of dehumanizing people and through whatever lens that that's done. These are, these are how these monsters are created, but also like who fucking knows that's unknown. It's like what, where they're coming from really truly is unknowable to us. If we don't share that, that amorality, that nihilism. And in this case, it's literally wearing a human face. Yeah. It's cosmic horror, but it's in Texas. It's folk horror, but it's not in a village in England. It's, you know, however many miles outside of Austin, you know, it's, it's taking these these very old horror traditions and and putting them in a way that Americans of that time could say, "Oh, I I know what that is," even if the idea was to be off the map. Yeah, that's the thing. Even the looking for gas and the asking, the going to knock on a stranger's door for help because your car is undrivable for whatever reason or you're lost. These are old things. And they come back to a tradition known as the old dark house mysteries. And in the film that I paired this with was 1932's James Wales, The Old Dark House. And that's another post-war movie. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, this is where we're at after Vietnam. The Old Dark House is, this is where we're at after World War One. There's even reference made to the character of Penderel being a veteran of yeah. World War One. Something I definitely keyed in on when you uh, when you made that choice. Yeah, but so all of the really all of the horror of this first horror film boom of the early 1930s it started in the silence. It started with Caligari, the the idea of the post World War One. Like this is what World War One has done to Europe. This is what World War One has done to our collective psyche. That was carried into the, the films of the 20s and then the films of the early 30s, and especially James Whale, because James Whale was also a veteran. He served in, in World War I in the British Army. He was in the trenches, literally. And it's fun to see these kind of similar anxieties at work in a, in a quainter context than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, you get people arriving at Femme Manor Feeling not just out of place, but out of time in a similar way to the teenagers in, in TCM. Yeah. So it's the Wavertons and Penderel, and they're in Wales. And I'm wondering, is Wales just the Texas of Great Britain? <laughs> I feel like there's a heavy secessionist movement in Wales. There's one of those in Texas. How's the barbecue in Wales? Have you ever been? I have not. I've only ever been to London and... Couldn't tell you. I don't. I don't know if Welsh cuisine is particularly distinct from <laughs> the fish and chips of the rest of the island. I don't know. They have a conservative comedy scene in Wales. Yeah. Is is Wales England's backyard the way uh, Texas is America's? Actually, that description popped into my head because when you were talking before about how TCM is folk horror, which I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, hundred percent, it's folk horror in America's backyard. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. So I have a question. When so you had never obviously you'd never seen old, the old dark house before, right? Because that's how this works. Which did you watch first? I did TCM first. I thought your pick was supposed to be the B feature, so that's how I did it. That's more or less, I guess, how I pitch it. I did it the other way. I did old dark house first and Texas Chainsaw Massacre second, 
because I had most recently seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I wanted to kind of like be like, we're going to do this chronologically. I'm going to, I'm going to see how that reads. And I think it's better the other way. I think it's probably better the way you did it just because old dark house is kind of like a, it releases the pressure of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, it helps you kind of come down from, you know, the, the chaos. Yeah. The cold light of morning, as it's called in, <laughs> in Old Dark House, is a lot uh, more forgiving than the cold light of morning in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is indeed. Yeah, there, there's a, a very good reason why after the election was called for Biden, I think like half of my timeline on Facebook was filled up with the shot of, of Sally in the truck at the end laughing maniacally and people saying current mood. Yeah, well... Who would have known that that just meant there's a sequel? <laughs> Honestly, it's apropos because it's like, well, things didn't get better. We didn't fix it. We didn't kill the monster. We just survived, kind of. That's, yeah, exactly. What was left of them? You know, not much, turns out. <laughs> yeah, on to the chili cook-off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the giant bone mansion underneath the abandoned playground of masculinity. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a very queer movie, and I I can show my notes on that. But speaking of very queer movies, The Old Dark House, what is what did you think of it? You loved it, right? Come on. You know you did. Oh, absolutely. Like James Whale is a great director. Everything he does is they're really fun watches even when they're not being as overtly comedic in the way that Bride of Frankenstein is. Yeah. All three of his post-Frankenstein horror movies are are very clearly intentionally funny. They're sardonic, they're morbid, they're macabre, but they're funny. And he knew he was being funny. Frankenstein is a little different. At the time that it was made, yeah, people were... That movie fucked people up. (laughs) (laughs) Because again, it was right after World War One. It's like that movie is about World War One. Yeah, not as far removed as from people running away from trains on movie screens as uh, we are now, too. So, to be fair. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. When Frankenstein first showed, everybody thought that he was coming out of the screen at them, and they ran away. That is actually true, according to David Lewis, James Whale's partner. When the first Frankenstein movie screened, people were leaving the theater and then coming back in. And then leaving again because they couldn't they couldn't handle looking at Karloff in the in the Pierce makeup. Yeah, this was a lot of fun, and like you know, the parallels kind of present themselves immediately. And I, I really like that kind of the the superficial and spiritual parallels kind of coalesce as the movie goes on. Yeah, yeah. One of the funny things is when Porterhouse and and Gladys arrive, you wind up with the same combination of people. You have you know three dudes and two women now in this group talking to weird bickering siblings who have a dark secret yeah it's the same basic setup of a group traveling can no longer travel for whatever reason in the case of the old dark house it's because the roads are are bad and the weather's too bad and in the case of texas chainsaw massacre it's that they're running out of gas and so they can no longer travel anywhere, but they still, they got just enough ability to drive their car to this place. And then it's two couples and one fifth wheel in the house of a dysfunctional family of people who have been closed off from what we consider society. Right. Both families bear some form of ill fortune. 
And, and keep uh, grandpa in the attic. And they keep, yeah, <laughs> keep grandpa <laughs> in the attic. I mean, so it's their, your, your basic same setup there. And the old dark house is doing this with pieces that, that emerged through an old dark house mystery subgenre born out of this tradition of, of literary and theatrical conventions. But it's still playing with ideas that, that have come before. But it's, it's just such a lasting formula. It's such a, a guaranteed premise. And that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre is doing the same thing. The funny thing about Old Dark House is that the, the fifth wheel actually switches roles halfway through. Yeah, that's the funny thing is that Old Dark House actually fucking plays with the idea of the fifth wheel. In that, you know, initially the fifth wheel is Penderel. And then he forms this connection with Gladys, the woman that Porterhouse brings. And it's it switches around. And then Porterhouse becomes our Franklin. Yeah, which is funny because, you know, Penderel was always perfectly happy being, you know, a third wheel. Like, at no moment is there, like, any kind of, you know, tension about him being there with a couple. The yeah. couple's bickering with each other, and he's just in the backseat making oh. wisecracks. Yeah, and then they arrive at the house, and they're all reasonably chummy with one another. And then, yeah, Porterhouse, after Gladys tells him that she's going to uh, make her way off with Pendril, he's the one who starts uh, belly aching. That exchange is so great, too. And she's like, her feet got wet. Your yeah. feet got wet, and that's not all. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> this is pre-code, baby. <laughs> but before, yeah, and he says it like three times to her because he's like kind of drunk and bitter. He's like, so your feet got wet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so great. But, but as soon as she shows up, right, Penderel is like a horn dog. He's just like immediately, he's like, oh, a chick, man, a woman, ooh, a bird. <laughs> and gives her his shoes, yeah. But yeah, I like to make a list when I do these things of the connective tissue that I see here. And it's, yeah, so we have travelers whose vehicle is no longer able to travel, weird family in a weird house, a weird family that's cut off and quote-unquote cursed by certain conditions and circumstances. In the femme group, the femme household, I think there are counterparts for every member of the Sawyer household to the femme household. It, right, it's obvious that Morgan is Karloff is Leatherface. Uh, they even both speak gibberish. Yeah, like they both have this like weird guttural language that they do. And and he was great. He was so much fun to watch. Yeah. Oh, and his makeup job is great. Again, it's Pierce Pierce makeup to make his face look all scarred. Then you've got Ernest Thesiger as Horace Femme in just one of my favorite roles ever anywhere in anything is your Jim Seedow. He's your Drayton. Yep. Saul Femme is the hitchhiker. Yep. And they both, I love this, they both play with knives and fire. Yeah. And Roderick Femme, obviously, is Grandpa. And I, I, really quick, I want to touch on the Roderick Femme and Grandpa connection, too, is that they're both played by not old men. Yes. <laughs> Grandpa Sawyer, What? how old was that guy? John Dugan, yeah, it's like 19 or 20. He was a college kid. Yeah, 19 or 20. Did you say his name is Dugan? Yeah, John Dugan. Okay, so oh. the actor who is credited with the role of Sir Roderick Femme is John Dudgeon. Dugan Dudgeon. That's Dudgeon, fun. yeah. <laughs> but that is not actually the name of the actor playing Roderick Femme. The name of the actor playing Roderick Femme is Elspeth Dudgeon, and she is a woman. She was like 60-ish when she played the role. So they are both 
not old men actors playing old men in heavy makeup. One of them, it's an age makeup, and the other one, it's age plus, you know, gender swap makeup. Yeah, giving her a weird kind of Yoda-ish quality in playing a guy. Oh, God, I love her. I love that performance. That Her <laughs> laugh? Ugh. And they also both need to be hydrated. Yes. <laughs> Roderick Femme gets a glass of water, and Grandpa gets to suck some blood out of Marilyn Burns' finger. Marilyn Burns' actual blood, for those keeping score. Marilyn Burns' actual blood, because Gunnar Hansen lost his fucking mind after being shut in that room for, what, 27 hours? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> but the yeah, the, the final shooting the dinner scene in the house lasted between 22 and 29 hours. Jesus Christ. Wow. During which it is said that every crew member at some point had to go outside and throw up because Gunnar Hansen hadn't washed his costume at all because they didn't want it to like for continuity reasons. Oh yeah. So he stunk to high fucking heaven. It was 120 degrees in there <sighs> because they had like duvetine hanging over all the windows because it was actually light out. Yeah. Just what a nightmare. Uh, what a nightmare of a shooting schedule. I mean, yes, you were watching them lose their fucking minds as yeah. they were at that dinner table. The one member of the fam family that it's difficult to find a counterpart for in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Rebecca Fem, the, the wonderful, crazed, religious, hard-of-hearing sister played by Eva Moore. God, she's so good. She's <laughs> so good. And the lines are just so amazing. That's finest stuff, but it'll rot. That's finest stuff still. It'll <laughs> rot, too, just the same. Like, it's just like... Oh, she's I, so great. I can't hear, but I see your lips moving. You're blaspheming over there. Yeah. <laughs> no beds. There's no beds. <laughs> she is fantastic. And the counterpart to her that I think exists in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one, I think every member of the Sawyer family has like a little bit of her in them. Like like an inner voice telling them that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. As you see in Jim Cedow's performance, for example, but also yeah. I think it comes through. I think it comes through in Leatherface's neurosis a little bit. But the doomsayer, the drunk at the cemetery at the beginning of Texas. Oh, yeah, there it is. He's Rebecca Femme. He even has that, like, they shoot him in an almost distorted way, you know, as... Like the funhouse mirrors, yeah. Yeah, Rebecca Femme has all those shots of, of her reflection in the mirror when she's going on and on about blaspheming and wickedness. So it's, it's like that. I, I see that. There. I just love that line, too. There's them that laughs and knows better. Yeah. <laughs> see, it's just an old man. To go back to Morgan for a second, another interesting parallel between him and Leatherface is that they both go through transformations to, like, to kind of change the kind of monster they are. Yeah. You know, Leatherface changes faces, and Morgan gets drunk, and that's when he assaults Ms. Waverton and goes to let Saul out. And they're both like the domestic people in their households yeah. as well. Leatherface is the, you know, the, the housekeeper as Morgan is the butler. They both fuck up a door <laughs> yep. trying to get at a woman. You know, they're both like, they both have weird issues with women. Let's be honest. Mm. Morgan's is a little bit more. I think that the tech, the Leatherface in Texas t Chainsaw 2, Bill Johnson is more like Morgan than the leather face in Texas Chainsaw 1. Well, yeah, part one is, like, pretty much asexual. Yeah, but, yeah, the connections between Morgan and Leatherface, I just love them all. They both throw temper tantrums. When Morgan smashes the door, this time I was like, 
Look what the butler did to the door. <laughs> I got a kick out of it. That was to no one but me. But And you, dear listeners. And you, yes. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of parallels. Let me let me rattle some more off here. You know, you've got Lawton and, and Partain. You've got Porterhouse and Franklin, both as the annoying character, quote unquote. And Lawton gets to really vindicate himself. Porterhouse gets to kind of stick up for himself in a way that Franklin doesn't really get to. He kind of admits that he's being a grump about it when when Pendrel and and Gladys say that they're gonna, you know, go off together because it wasn't a romantic relationship anyway that was being broken up. And he lets Pendrel call him Bill and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, he kinda he kinda comes back around and it, it, he has a sense of self awareness about it. Yeah, he also gets to kind of when Pendrel's sort of doing that thing about the kind of man Porterhouse is, you know, when there's these sort of aspersions being cast, Porterhouse gets to stand up for himself and say, well, okay, you think this is who I am, but I got this whole story here that you don't know about. And he, he gets to talk about his, you know, his wife and this whole revenge fantasy he had in getting rich and crushing the people that, that drove his wife to suicide. Oh, yeah. And, and Franklin doesn't ever really have that kind of agency. And it's interesting. Like, you know, obviously Porterhouse is a more privileged version of Franklin. But they all I also love that they both get a prop. Lawton as Porterhouse gets his cigar. Yeah. Paul Partain as Franklin gets that sausage piece that he gets to, that he gets to <laughs> gesture with. And it's almost like a cigar. Also, both Ernest Thesiger and Jim Cito, I believe were 53 years old at the time of filming. So Ernest Thesiger is Horace Femme and Jim Cito is the cook. Same age when they're making these movies. Are they going to have a whole uh, Lincoln Kennedy thing? Yeah, so Jim Cito's mom's name is actually Ernest and Ernest Thesiger's daughter <laughs> yeah. There's also There are also a lot of queer elements in both films, I think. I mean, less so in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre there are queer elements in the character of Leatherface. And, I mean, Old Dark House, it's just like, well, pick a thing. Yeah. The entire Femme family is queer representation. Like, you cannot tell me that Rebecca Femme is not a little bit repressed in what she wants to say and do with Margaret Waverton. <laughs> oh, Femme, I just got it. Also, yeah, their name is Femme, <laughs> all right? Apparently, a lot of the stuff in the film is directly from the novel that it's based on Benighted by J.B. Priestley. But, I mean, I don't know if that's what Priestley was thinking when he named them Femme, but come on. Saul Femme is definitely like a, a classic Hollywood sissy character. I mean, he's a, it's a little downplayed because also there's the mental illness element, which is problematic historically. Yeah. But there is this not butch quality to, to his mannerisms and his performance. He's very sensitive obviously fucking i don't even need to say it about horace femme ernest thesiger who yes he was married to a woman for 50 years he was not a straight man i mean he, he used to do needlepoint not that this means anything you know necessarily <laughs> but he was famous for doing needlepoint between takes that was his whole there was a documentary made on television about his dedication to needlepoint and he, he his nickname on movie sets was this the stitching bitch and he used to like <laughs> revel in that. So yeah, they're all all of those characters are queer coded as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I was definitely getting Peter Laurie in the Maltese Falcon vibes from him pretty much immediately. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's definitely a little more reserved here than he is in Bride of Frankenstein, but... Yeah, which is, you know, just kind of how that was represented back then. Yeah. But also, this is a film made by a director who is an openly gay man in Hollywood in the 1920s and 30s. Like, it's kind of astonishing in a lot of ways that he's getting to tell this story. He's getting to tell these stories and make these movies, and he's successful. Yeah. About a family that has a member that they're ashamed of locked away, and you have Morgan kind of finding the liquid courage to let it out and then, you know, see it not be accepted by the people who are strangers in the house. Yeah. It's funny because it's sort of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just the Femmes, the Sawyer family. It's just the Femmes if they didn't lock Saul up and they didn't invite dinner guests. I don't know. Okay, They do invite the, the kids to dinner, though. I think that's the problem. If they had just accepted Nubbins's dinner invite, they might have been fine. But instead, they were rude about it. <laughs> it's also kind of like maybe Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just old dark house if Leatherface doesn't answer the door when there's knocking. So you think if they had gone and had uh, tried some of his brother's head cheese, if they had accepted that invitation, Leatherface yeah. just would have like you know sat there politely in his pretty woman mask and... If nobody had said anything about it, it would have been a perfectly delightful evening. Yeah, you know, just pass the potato. Uh, <laughs> your head cheese, that's no way to treat roast beef. The head cheese is delicious. No pickled onions, thank you. And that will be on our way in the morning. I feel like maybe if Kirk had just waited for someone to answer the door, maybe things could have gone differently. Maybe they could have, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say I'm not so sure about that. No, probably not, yeah. Because probably, probably people... <laughs> They're eating that night one way or another. Yeah, right. Exactly. They're not going hungry. There's also the war connection between both films. There's explicit mention of, of World War One and what it's done to people in the old dark house, whereas Texas Chainsaw Massacre itself is kind of like a meditation on the effects of Vietnam in a lot of ways. Yeah. And interesting when Pendrel is toasting, he toasts to illusion. Yes, which is, you know, where, they're, where, they, where they've found themselves. And it's when he says that, that Fenn calls him out as being part of the war generation. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that it's Thesiger as Horace Fenn delivering that line about the, what does he say? Something like, you're one of the young men smashed by the war or something. Yeah. And it's interesting that it's Thesiger saying that because Thesiger was in the war. And he had some gnarly fucking experiences in World War One. So Thesiger himself was like, you know, had traumatic experience in the war. And so it's interesting for him to be delivering this line about illusion and young men damaged by the war. Also, Ed Neal from Texas Chainsaw Massacre was in Vietnam. Yeah. So there's, you know, you got these veterans and James Whale directed Old Dark House. He was a World War One vet. He was a prisoner of war. Actually, he was in a POW camp. In Germany? Yeah. Wow. In, in Hanover, I believe. And that's where he learned that he wanted to do theater (laughs) and then started doing theater after the war and then started doing films and became this, this huge success very quickly. And then also very quickly it was over for him because of another war. Actually it was world war two was starting. he He made a war movie and he didn't want to make any more war movies, but he made the road back. And apparently there were a bunch of, cuts made by the censors to appease Germany. Because we were still in that phase. 
it's just another couple superficial, I guess, little connections between the two movies. Both have a couple of people that wait at a car during a bulk of the action. It's like, yeah, when Pendril and Gladys sneak off to indulge in some of his whiskey and then fall in love. Yeah. While Morgan's raging inside. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Sally and Franklin are waiting at the van while Jerry's getting fucking killed. Well, the majority of the killings not involving a chainsaw are uh, are happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Texas Chainsaw Massacre only has one more person getting killed by a chainsaw than the old Dark House. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly 25% of the deaths involve a chainsaw. Also, both families in these films, the Femmes and the Sawyers, make their own electricity. It is an explicit part of the narrative that they make their own electricity. But yeah, Sister Femme doesn't like it, though. She's not a fan of electricity. Yeah, I don't I don't get that. It's, maybe it's because it's not, you know, it's sinful. It's wicked. It's blasphemous. How dare man use electricity? That's God's providence. I don't know. Maybe that's why the Sawyers got rid of their matriarch figure. She was <laughs> weird about the generator they were using. So Yeah. Also, in Old Dark House, Saul, I believe, is the only character who dies. Yeah, that's true. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, other characters die, but the only member of the family to die is the hitchhiker. True. With the true hero of the movie, the guy <laughs> driving Black Maria. Black Maria. <laughs> uh, what a truck. who takes out the hitchhiker and fends off Leatherface so Sally can get away. Yeah. What a hero. Yeah. I love, by the way, Brember Wills as Saul Femme. There's just that... Also, him and the hitchhiker both kind of profess themselves to be authorities on a subject. You know, they both have, like, some knowledge that they're going to enlighten their audience regarding. Hitchhiker's got his whole thing about... You know, the old way of killing, that was that was the better way to do it. They died better that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was the killer. <laughs> I love the way he says that. And then Saul Femme has his whole thing about fire. Like, I know, I know the secrets of fire. Do you want to know? Right. Which I love. I love. I love his, God, just everything about every performance in the old Dark House is fantastic to me. Lawton's, like, playing drunk. Gladys's, like, freewheelingness. Penderel's sly aloofness but just the femmes every member of the femme family all those actors are fucking killing it and it makes them so interesting just like all of the performances in texas chainsaw massacre make the sawyer family just fascinating yeah all very doing their own things that makes for you know a a very like you know chaotic dynamic among all of them yeah and it really is one of those like how different are we really like, how? what are the conditions that could turn me and my community into that? And it's you see things in them that you know that are familiar to you. But it's also just like, wow. I mean, the difference, of course, being that only two members of the Femme family are outright looking to harm people, whereas arguably every member of the Deviants, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of the, the parallel between Saul and the hitchhiker, it's kind of like the same degree of, or similar degrees of kind of what I was talking about earlier of, you know, them trying to be people. When Saul first comes out, he kind of tries to like rein in his unhingedness, but gradually is unable to. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh God, his whole thing where he like convinces him for a moment too that like, no, I'm the victim here. I'm being held against my will and they're the rest of the family. They're the problem. Yeah. It's almost like the Sawyers really are if the Femmes just stopped trying to protect the world from their dangerous elements. Yeah. You know, the Sawyers are just like, no, we're just going to embrace the ways in which we are a threat. And to me, I think the way that I look at these two films and their relationship beyond the, the obvious parallels, beyond the, the cosmetic parallels and the, like the, the conventional, like these are the stories they're telling. It's very similar stuff. But the difference between the two, I think is very telling as well, because I think the key difference is just one of like a social perspective. Like in 1932, coming out of, I mean, we're a decade now removed from World War I, but the effects of it are still felt pretty profoundly. But we're also now in a depression. You know, we're three years almost by the time this movie comes out, we're three years into a depression nationally. And there's this, this thing where we have to see, you know, the obstacles we face as surmountable. They're things that we can beat. They're not going to overwhelm us. They're not going to crush us. We're gonna, we, we might have to fight some of them, but they're not that threatening. And in the cold light of morning, we're going to emerge victorious and it's going to be fine. They're challenging, but they're beatable. We can do this. By 1974... It's like, we're not having that anymore. After two world wars and a deeply unpopular war that the U.S. is being dragged through by successive presidents. Yeah, and the beginnings of a gas crisis and the unraveling of certain elements of of the social fabric and all of the, the ways in which the country, the government and culture is abandoning large sections of, of the population. Like, the, the problems in front of us are are scary and we can't beat them. In fact, we're going to be lucky if we survive them and not much is going to be left of us probably. And that's the perspective that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is coming with. And I think that's the main difference to me between the two films and why one is more quaint than the other. Yeah. It's, it's the unraveling, the unraveling element of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That is kind of you know, bringing that perspective. Cause I think looking at the 1932 version of that, I feel like the the aesthetic of the the manor house is kind of representative of you know what wealth was before the depression, and you have Horace Femme, who is you know still kind of trying to put on the same airs and kind of fit mm-hmm. into that, and his sister is just kind of over it. Like yeah. you know, there's no beds; they can all fuck off. All that matters is my faith in God now. Well, and she's the one that's not scared is the other thing. Like, it's yeah. funny. She's the, like, she's the dominant figure here. Like, Horace Femme kind of likes to think of himself as, like, you know, he gets a little catty. He says some shitty things. He knows what he's talking about, too, but he's not in charge in any way. He's the one who's yeah. afraid to go upstairs, yeah. Yeah, he's afraid to go upstairs in his own fucking house. Yeah. Rebecca's not scared of anything because she knows they're doomed. She knows they're cursed. It is a really small detail about, you know, her perspective on that. It's like her just shoveling all those onions onto her plate. You can like, you you can feel the, you know, how out of place that like should be in that aesthetic. And, you yeah. know, with, like I said, like, you know, the airs that are put on to fit into that. But she doesn't give a shit. Yeah, no, she's like, I'm going to eat those, these pickled fucking onions. We're going to say grace. I'm going to do it fast. But then I'm going to eat every pickled onion in this jar. <laughs> 
She is so great. That's another thing that I forgot to mention. Both films have an uncomfortable dinner scene. Dinner scene, yeah. Yeah. They both have a dinner scene. Have a potato. <laughs> and that weird business where they like slice the bread and then like the plate gets Mor- yeah, Morgan she- comes and takes the plate and puts it takes it from Horace and then puts it back in front of Rebecca and like they yeah. all slide their plates down and like it's so weird. Yeah, she spears a piece of bread with like a meat fork and passes it to somebody and they just take it like, okay, I guess it's so weird. (laughs) Horace Femme's introduction is weird when he's like, my sister was going to arrange these flowers and then just throws them in the fucking fireplace. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So great. What was his his nickname on set? The, the stitching bitch, the stitching bitch, (laughs) this little cattiness from the stitching bitch throwing the flowers in the fireplace. (laughs) I love it. I love it. But yeah, so meanwhile, the house in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? The 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 house, the farmhouse. Is it a farmhouse? It's just a house. I mean, it, it looks more like a farmhouse at first, I think. But uh, I mean, it's just like it's on a bunch of land. So I feel yeah. like to, you know, city dwellers, anything that has that much space looks like a farmhouse. But uh, yeah. it didn't seem to be growing anything besides Volkswagen Beetles. Yeah, I feel like the, the 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 Lionsgate movies try to tell you it's a farm. It's the Sawyer family farm or whatever. Right. But like there's no farm there. Yeah, there's a bunch of land. But yeah, that house is like it's it's a more relatable house. It's a house, you know, as an American in, 19, in the 1970s. It's a house you're familiar. It's a modest, humble home. The people right. that lived at that house worked at the slaughterhouse that closed down like it's not this big, decrepit mansion. But yeah, there's this idea that like the old money of the Welsh family, the Femmes, like they're cursed by, they were cut off from society because of, you know, erosion or whatever. But also, you know, the madness of, of that kind of, that kind of family. The curse on the, the Sawyers is the curse of just systems failing across the country and the slaughterhouse closing and the town becoming a ghost town that doesn't get gas anymore. But yeah, they're they're both kind of, you can see how they're both inviting in very different ways because you you come up on a manor house like the Femmes and it's like, well, clearly they can afford to help us and give us somewhere to stay for the night. And the Sawyer's house, it just looks like, you know, here's some good old rural folks with American values who would, you know, want to help out a van full of kids. Yeah, country hospitality. Yeah. They're going to do right by your neighbor or whatever. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there's like this implicit idea that there's a cultural divide, right? That these kids are like, you know, not really hippies, but, you know, the post-hippie casual American youth, you know? Yeah. Whereas the Sawyers are, I mean, they're, let's be honest though. They're not, they don't vote. (laughs) (laughs) Like the biggest mistake to me that the remake made and and a lot of the subsequent films of the post 9-11 Texas Chainsaw Massacres is by trying to make it this, not just implicit, but like explicit red state versus blue state thing where these, the family is just this like vaguely, right-wing neoconservative religious moral majority like caricature just a bunch of these vague traits 
like in the beginning where Arlie Ermey is judging the boys for being draft dodgers. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, well, not that those guys are much better. I mean, the one of the dudes, the first thing out of his mouth is a racial slur. And he like literally says, stay the course at one point. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. not going to, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to just get into how much I fucking hate that movie. But yeah, it's, that's the mistake that those movies made is by that kind of a characterization. And it's like, yeah, I get it. We're, you know, Iraq at the time, et cetera, George Bush, whatever. Like we were doing our own things, but that's just the dumb way to do it. You look at the Sawyers in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. These guys aren't Republicans. They're not, they're fucking like Republicans think they're weird. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, they're outside of, of anything political. They are a totally different animal. There's also some interesting aesthetic stuff, like similarities where like in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, Toby Hooper's cutting in on Marilyn Burns's face a bunch, like kind of compartmentalizing her face almost in a disorienting way towards the end. Yeah. And Whale does that with Karloff in his introductory scene in Old Dark House. He definitely gets the most close-ups in the movie, especially after, you know, he's gotten drunk and he yeah. has that like very menacing, disoriented look to him. Yeah. They cut in on his mouth at one yeah. point, the same way that, you know, Leatherface gets his licking his teeth bit. And he'll, I mean, obviously in a very different way from Sally, who is strapped to a chair, but like he, he looks almost out of, the, the way he looks out of control of himself, like, you know, he's drunk himself into a trance. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's weird. It's like he's not there in the same way that Sally is not there, but for very different reasons. That's interesting. Yep. One of my favorite moments in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is before she's strapped to the chair when Grandpa's sucking her blood. Just like one of the amazing ways that Toby Hooper is just so in your head with how that movie is scary is like, that is exactly what I would pass out to. Yeah. I just like, I just be like, no, I'm done. Like whatever's going to happen. <laughs> I do not need to be awake for it. Yeah. I'm shutting down. We don't need to remember this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, they're both great. I love old dark. I love, I love getting to introduce people to movies like old dark house too, because it's also, it's like James whale, arguably one of the genres, like biggest, you know, most influential voices changed the landscape of the genre in so many ways. And, and also b almost by chance, like he wasn't originally supposed to direct Frankenstein. Who was? Uh, Robert Flory was supposed to direct it originally, but whale like became this guy who's like, yeah, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, the Invisible Man. I feel like the old dark house, because it's not a universal monster movie, and because like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it has an interesting post-release history with rights. And in the case of Old Dark House, like not knowing if there's if there was a print of it anywhere. Like the director Curtis Harrington had to rescue the old dark house from being a lost film, actually. It was thought to be a lost film at one point. Because <laughs> another thing both films have in common, they were both remade 30 years after the fact. Huh. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, obviously by the Platinum Dunes in 2003, but Old Dark House was remade in 63 by William Castle. And at that point, right. Universal didn't have the rights to show it anymore, so they didn't care about it. And then later it was up to Curtis Harrington to like find a print and negotiate getting the getting it restored and, and re-released and so because of that old dark house i feel like is one of these you know movies that not a lot of people talk about when they talk about horror i mean how did it get lost in the shuffle to wind up having to be rediscovered like that 
Well, it was just a matter of, you know, when the the rights reverted to the, the adaptation rights reverted to the novelist, the film rights, uh, I think they were sold to Columbia and then Columbia had the William Castle remake. But because of that, Universal had this like, they couldn't release it theatrically commercially again. So there was just no interest and stuff back then, you know, there was no VHS, no DVD, like there were archival screenings. Here's the other thing, Old Dark House, because of the rights issue, was not one of the films included in the shock theater package that Universal sold to Columbia for television broadcast. And because of that, it didn't enjoy the popularity that movies like Dracula I mean, the, uh, let's just say the other 52 universal horror movies that were part of the shock theater program that horror hosts would play on TV. Right. Like that's how those movies found a second life in the, in the 1950s. So old dark house was almost a victim of just like making space in the vault. Yeah, e- exactly. Exactly. And it was Curtis Harrington who like tracked down a print. And there was this whole story about how the first reel of the print was degraded beyond an acceptable condition and they had to strike a new negative from the the lavender print the protection print and it's yeah it's this whole anyway but the film was brought back into you know the the conversation by him because universal didn't care because it's like well if we can't release it commercially or sell it to tv why fucking bother right but curtis curtis harrington was a huge james whale fan so he he like he when he became a director at Universal, when he was hired on, he was like, okay, well, now I got to see if I can finagle this. I got to see if I can make this happen. That's crazy. Yeah. But, I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has its own fucked up post-release history. Yeah, with uh, Bryanston Pictures, when they were trying to figure out how they were going to get it distributed, they literally just went to the mob who bought it. It was wildly successful, and just no money was showing up for any of the cast or crew, like all of whom like did it for next to nothing. So they were supposed to have back end points. So they went to Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel and they're like, we don't know what to tell you. So they went to Bryanston who said, yeah, go ahead, sue us. And which they attempted to. And Bryanston just declared bankruptcy closed and made off with all the money that should have, you know, obviously they were titled some of it, but should have gone to the folks who made the movie. Yeah, but but somehow that movie is still like game changer. Yeah, you know? and it's so unlikely. That's so funny to me that like this this Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was what was the original title for it? Uh, there were a few of them: Head Cheese, Leatherface, and one that I actually didn't even know until we were at trivia. And the question, is, I think it was a whole category of like working titles, and you, the answer was like what the film was eventually called. And the title they gave for that question was Saturn and Retrograde. And I was like, oh, oh that's wow. the point. If it's in retrograde in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's got to be it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, sure enough. That just reminds me of another weird parallel between the two films is there's this talk of the astrology in, oh, in Texas right, Chainsaw right. Massacre. But in the old dark house, there's this talk about feminine intuition. Right. Right. The female intuition. And they're both like used to kind of like sort out where a person's coming from or like judging a person's makeup, you know? And it, I just think it's fun. It's interesting. These two things that were kind of like in vogue topics of discussion of their time are, it, are both very different periods of time. Yeah. But there's something in the ether influencing events. Yeah. 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 So unlikely. 
that this movie possibly called Saturn Retrograde, which I do like, by the way, I do like that as a title, but of course it's not, it's not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, it speaks to like the, I don't know, I guess it's kind of a less nihilistic title because it implies that, you know, there is an order that is like being imposed on, you know, the universe by these cosmic yeah. forces, but it almost makes it more hopeless because everything that is happening to them is preordained because of, you know, the way the stars move. Yeah, there's a design. And yeah. you don't know the design. So you can't act to influence the design. And that is fucking cosmic horror. There it is. So, but it's just an unlikely story of this film's success. You know, it's just, you wouldn't expect it. But to just lightning in a bottle, perfect storm. Here it is. It's one of the most influential horror movies of all time despite all of this other problem. But then on the other hand, you have Old Dark House, which is James Whale's second horror feature after Frankenstein, coming off of Frankenstein, the biggest success for Universal. Universal budget, Universal everything. Universal yeah. press machine. Carl Lamley Jr. just saying, do whatever you want, James Whale. Like this movie that should be, and then it gets almost lost. There's an interesting uh, dichotomy, I think, at work between the two films, despite all of the things they share in common. Yeah, like complete opposites of like, you know, the well-oiled machine of Hollywood and, and then the classical era. And then the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre being almost as chaotic as the fucking movie is. Yeah, yeah, Just... with like, with mob money involved. And <laughs> like all of this other shit going on, like in Texas, like outside of the industry. Yeah, with a bunch of actors who, you know, kind of stumbled into auditions from, you know, mostly being kids who uh, went to, to AU. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because, like, the pathetic fallacy at work in both films, you know, Old Dark House, the storm, all artificial. You know, yep. it's all created by machines and, like, expensive machines and a big crew making these things happen. And the pathetic fallacy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just like, well, it's Texas and it's August. So it's fucking hot. <laughs> the sun is out, my friends. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's about the sweatiest looking movie out there. And the production design too. It's like old dark house has Charles D hall who worked on cat and the canary. And it's got all this German expressionism at work. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre has got, Bob Burns running around picking up fucking roadkill to throw in the house. And that's their production design. And some actual human skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah, that's what we call German expressionism. You know what I'm saying? Get it? Ex German expressionism and then expressionism, and it's a whole thing. You thought I would say Texan expressionism. Uh-uh. That's what you expect. I do the unexpected thing. I say German expressionism because it's still German somehow. There's only one rule of ghoul school. Expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. See, you did it again. I did it again. You did it again. You didn't expect it. Uh, you didn't expect it. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is this is unraveled. Much <laughs> that the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre unravels. But I just, I, I love talking about both these films. And I'm glad that I got to introduce you to the old dark house. Absolutely. I'm actually really looking forward to watching them both together again in the opposite order now, just because they do share so much interesting DNA. And, you know, I want to watch the chronological version. Yeah, get ramped up into the chaos. See, see the idealism of 1932 and then <laughs> throw it up against the nihilism of 1974. 
and just have to figure out what to do with myself after Texas Chainsaw Massacre ends yet again. Yeah, well, that's the problem. That's why I think the way you watched it is the better way to go. Start out with the with the nastiness and the uncertainty and the feeling of hopelessness at the end. And then give yourself a nice little romp with the femme family. <laughs> Where people find love every day yeah. in a garage over a bottle of whiskey. You too can fall in love while the locked away sun burns down the fucking house inside. And oh man, the biting, the biting he does. What a great, I look, I will stop. I'll He's stop. just trying to share the mystery of fire. <laughs> it's, look, it's cold like knives. It's, it burns with ice. What? what are you talking about? Well, it's interesting thinking about that in relation to what you were saying earlier about why Rebecca Femme doesn't like electricity because it feels like it's like stolen from the gods. Then you also have Saul talking, you know, with this great reverence for fire as though he respects it in the same way. Well, they both could be seen as references to Prometheus, which the original title of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus. Yeah. Frankenstein, the film, was directed by James Whale. Look, man, it's all connected. It's all connected. <laughs> I'm wrapping thread around thumbtacks on the bulletin board. <laughs> it's all connected. And isn't that great until Saturn is in retrograde? It's all fun and games until Saturn's in retrograde. <laughs> and then you're fucked. Look, you laugh. You laugh, Sean. But there's them that laughs and knows better. <laughs> so I think my favorite line in that movie. It's pretty great. He's I referred to the cook earlier as the harbinger of the movie, but yeah, the old man really is. Yeah, but I mean, the cook is too, because he's the one that's like... He, he tells him to him turn again. back, yeah. Yeah, he says, don't go to that place. You don't want to be out there. God, he's so good. Jim Seedow, so good. Yeah, he was incredible. I've never seen him in anything besides the first two TCM movies. Seedow's great, and I wish that he had been in more stuff. Well, it's amazing how perfectly he fits into the family dynamic in the first two films, because... It's like they're both completely different. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. He's playing two very different versions of that character. In the second movie, he's much more of like a patriarch in charge. Who's, and he's also very self-satisfied. Whereas I never feel like he's self-satisfied in the first movie. I feel like he's very, he's very self-conscious. He's very self-aware, but I don't think satisfied is a term I would use for him in it. And that's interesting. That's an interesting arc to that character. Yeah, you see him be, you know, he, he definitely feels more like the patriarch in the in the second film, but you, you do see him be, you know, much like Sally dealing with Franklin, feel burdened by how he has to kind of like manage his brothers to keep the family unit functioning. Yeah, whereas in the first film, he's kind of like, you know, he's uncertain and they, they kind of abuse him a little bit. They make fun of him and he's like, ah, no, I'm not just the cook. Yeah, you're just the cook. You shut your mouth, but they don't take him seriously. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like they take him seriously in two either, but... Yeah, Chop Top's cook impression in the second one is fantastic. Yeah. Now I told you, boys, and I told you, boys, and I told you. <laughs> you gotta get up there, you gotta get that dollar. <laughs> Nomland! <laughs> yeah, speaking of, yeah, there's... Chop Top is explicitly a Vietnam vet. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to add before... You know, this was a great pairing. I, I loved how all the, the spiritual and superficial similarities between the two films kind of gradually coalesce toward the end of Old Dark House, that being the one that I hadn't seen before. And I'm really looking forward to watching them again in the chronological order. Who's your favorite femme? Ooh, that's tough. 
I think I'd have to say Rebecca, just because she's kind of the most subtle agent of chaos of all of them, but she is one nonetheless. He's not as, you know, unhinged as Saul. She's not as violent as Morgan. But the way that she kind of commands the, the space that she occupies is is very entertaining in a in, in a very Sawyer kind of way. Yeah. And she gets in everyone's heads. Yeah. She's the one member of the Femme family that we see leaves a lasting impression on Margaret Waverton because she remembers her encounter with Rebecca twice. There's like two like almost PTSD like flashbacks to her encounter with Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you and your work? Oh, I have spearheaded the launch of a podcast network, the Malcontent Media Network. Right now we have three shows on the air. We have Whiskey with Witcher, which is a couple of folks going episode by episode of Netflix's The Witcher and adding whiskey pairings that they discuss. Uh, we got Pod Forsaken, which if you're a fan of this podcast, you will also enjoy. Uh, it's a more or less review podcast that tries to bring attention to underseen horror films. And we have Tentpole Trauma, which takes a look back at films that were you know supposed to be blockbuster successes and wound up being either critical or commercial failures. So uh, check out Malcontent Media, if you please. Let's see, we got Twitter and Instagram at, at Malcontent Pods. You can find us on Facebook also. And yeah, come check it out. I have a personal Twitter account too, but I don't really do much with it. I don't even remember what the handle is. <laughs> well, yeah, check out Malcontent Media's podcast. Check out Pod Forsaken if you feel like it, you know. <laughs> have you ever guessed it on Pod Forsaken? Uh, no, I've never guessed it on Pod Forsaken, but I have recommended a movie to them once when they were doing their devil movies. Oh, right. Cycle. But uh, yeah, Je- uh, yeah, I like Rodney. I like Jen and Seb. I like Tentpole Trauma. Listen to it. I haven't listened to Whiskey with Witcher because I don't watch The Witcher and I don't drink whiskey. So, But if you like The Witcher and you like whiskey, you should. that sounds like a podcast made for you, right? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually on Pod Forsaken and Tentpole Trauma recently. Uh, Pod Forsaken, we covered uh, Patchwork. Which, oh, I uh, love Patchwork. I love Patchwork, Speaking yeah. Speaking of Frankenstein movies. Yeah. That movie's great. Yeah. It is a hoot with a capital H for sure. And then I was just on Tentpole Trauma covering both Judge Dredd movies. The unforgivable 1995 Sylvester Stallone vehicle. I'm and sorry. I'm sorry. You mean the lauded Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider movie. masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the fucking fantastic Carl Urban flick from 2012. I can't say enough good things about that movie. And I had to admit, as I'm admitting now, that I was part of the problem. I didn't go see it. I didn't believe in it. And boy, was I wrong. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. I'm, I also didn't go see it in the theater. God, oh, you know what I want to recommend to you, actually? I just saw this Camille Keaton movie from 1972, two years before Texas Chainsaw Massacre was released, called Tragic Ceremony. Tragic Ceremony, okay. And it has a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre setup stuff in it. There's a gas station. There's people trying to get gas because their vehicle's out of gas. They're, they're hippies. They're even driving in a dune buggy. So that there's like they're trying to make the Manson connection there. Yeah. But it's more explicitly a satanic panic film. With Wait, a what cult. was it called again? Tragic Ceremony. The original Italian title actually translates to From the Secret Files of the P- 
police of a European nation or something like that. It's one of those interminable Jalo titles. Yeah. Extracted, I think, is the extracted from the, the files of the secret police of a European nation or something like that. But it's uh, a tra- <laughs> tragic ceremony with Camille Keaton. It is pretty interesting. It's pretty wild. It'd be another thing to watch with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, that would be kind of like fun for its for the connective tissue. Yeah, follow Malcontent Media, uh, listen to their podcasts. We will have Sean back on again at some point. And until then, class class deceased. deceased.